as I'm sure most of you know by this time, we are in the month of Elul, and Elul is the last month before the Holy Days, and to refresh your memory on sequence, on the 15th of Nisan in the spring, Israel left Egypt, and then approximately 50 days later, they arrive at Sinai, and God talks to Israel at Sinai. Then Moses goes up on the mountain for 40 days, and we have the first set of tablets. We also, at the end of that 40 days, have the golden calf, and then Moses spends 40 days in the tent of meeting, or on the mountain, it goes back and forth, and then on the first of Elul, the first of this month, Moses goes back up the mountain and gets the second set of tablets. He comes down from the mountain after 40 days, and we are at the 10th of Tishri, which is Yom Kippur. So that's our sequence. And where we are then is in the 40 days when Moses would have been up on the mountain getting the second set of tablets, and everybody is camped down around the base of the mountain, this time not doing a golden calf. And at the end of that time, when Moses comes back down with the second set of tablets, that's when we have the Day of Atonement. So that's when God accepts Israel's repentance and she is forgiven. So traditionally in Judaism, this 40-day period of preparation between the first of Elul and Yom Kippur is a time of reflection, introspection, a time to forgive people, a time to restore relationships, a time to take stock of what you are and who you are, and a time to get yourself ready for the holy days. It is my opinion that I suspect that this is where the Sunday liturgical church got Lent 40 days before Easter. God bless them. They're doing the same kind of thing, but it's wrong time of the year. So as you're getting ready and you're going through this 40 days, there are no coincidences. It's not a kosher word. So by coincidence, we are also going through Musar. During Midrash, we're going through Musar, and that is a time where you do an inventory of your character. We're going through a character trait each week, and in traditional Musar, there are 18 character traits. So I think we're on number eight or nine now. We just finished honor last week. But this week, we're going to do simplicity, which also is appropriate for what we're doing today. As I say, there's no such thing as the coincidence, but everything is lining up just perfectly for today. One of the rabbinic ways of looking at this, and it's rabbinic, it is not scripture. I think, however, it's very wise. So I will commend it to you for your thought, is whenever you get ready for a meeting, a big meeting in the world, you naturally prepare. If, for example, you were going to the bank to get a loan, you get all your finances together, you'd get all your checkbooks balanced, you'd do all the stuff you need, and when you got to the bank, you'd be prepared to present your case. So the way the Jews or rabbis look at this is during this 40-day period, you are getting ready to present your case. 
And again, this is rabbinic, it's not scripture. They regard the days of awe, the Yomim Narayim, which is the days between Yom Kippur and Yom Teruah. So Yom Teruah is going to be the Feast of Trumpets, also known as Rosh Hashanah, which is less than 40 days away at this point, as is Yom Kippur, actually. And then you have a 10-day period between the first of Tishri and Yom Kippur. And the expression they use is, the books are opened. And on Yom Kippur, the books are closed. So the way they look at it is this 10-day period is like you just went before a hypothetical banker, and the banker opens up your books, looks at your books, looks at his books, and decides how much he is going to invest in you for the next year. So one of the things that you would do then is you would come to him and say, this is what I did with what you invested in me last year. You invested in me a year of life. What did I do with it? Did I do well? Did I do poorly? Are things that I need to change or improve? What are my goals for the next year? Those are all things that the rabbinic community would say you should be doing during that 10-day period between the first of Tishri and Yom Kippur. Now, those of you who have been in Torah for a while recognize that everything runs in cycles. And so we have the cycle of Shabbat, seven days, seven days, seven days, seven days. You have the cycle of the feasts, and those go from Passover all the way around to Sukkot. You have the cycle of the new moons. Everything is cyclic, and it sort of feels like, gee, haven't we been here before? And many of you have heard variations of this message several times before. The metaphor that I like to use is a screw. A screw turns round and round and round and round. And so if you're riding on the head of the screw, it looks like around and around. We just came to Shabbat again. We just came to Yom Kippur again. We just came to New Year again. We just came to the new moon again. Round and round and round. And it looks like your whole life is just going around in circles. However, with a screw, the screw is also advancing as you turn and you go around and round and round and round. So what this point of the year allows you to do is to pop your head up and say, yeah, okay, I've been going around the cycles all year. Where have we advanced to? And when I say advancing, I don't mean advancing necessarily in goodness or anything else, but you're going toward a goal. So this world is going toward a goal. And, of course, prophecy tells you what that goal is, which is the return of Messiah, the reign of Messiah on earth, new heaven and new earth, reformation and everything. So there is a goal here that we're progressing toward as we go around and around and around and ride the head of the screw. You should be going toward a goal also, not necessarily the end of the age. It may happen while you're here, or it may happen in the next generation, or it may happen in the generation after that. We don't know. But you should have goals as well. And one of the things we talked about in Musar is this idea that if you are simply riding the head of the screw and you don't have any goals in your life, you sort of miss the point of the exercise. Because what God has done is he has put you here for a purpose. You've got a reason to be here. 
If you didn't have a reason to be here, he wouldn't have made you. God don't do anything by accident. So you've got a reason to be here. Now, one of the ways to figure out what the reason to be here is, as you go through life, and I find this in my life, is God keeps putting me into similar situations, different venues, different times, but I keep saying, oh, wow, I've seen this before. That's a big clue. And if you're just riding the head of the screw and you're oblivious and you don't recognize that, you miss those clues. And with most of us, it takes, oh, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, or a hundred times before you finally figure out what that is. Certainly the first time it shows up, you don't recognize a pattern. Maybe if you're oblivious, by the tenth time, you still don't recognize a pattern. But he'll keep putting you in those circumstances until you recognize the pattern, and that will give you clues as to why you're here. And that's what the whole business of Musar is about, is to pop your head up and look at your life and figure out what those clues are so that you can figure out what it is you're supposed to be doing. Now, as we say in Musar, you are not created perfect. God created lots of perfect things that do just exactly what they're supposed to do and nothing else. They're called cows and bugs and stuff like that. They don't have any real big choice and they don't have a great mission in life. All a cow does is give milk and keep the meat warm. But it doesn't really have a whole lot of goals in life. A deer just does what a deer does. Goes out and eats berries and so forth, makes more deer and just continues. You're different. You've got a goal. Now, as I say, you were not made perfect and that's by design. The fact that you are made imperfect is not an accident. You were not made perfect on purpose. And the reason you weren't made perfect on purpose is because you could be put here and during your lifetime you then have a curriculum to get from where you were born to where God wants you to be. This is a people improver. Now, some don't ever get the message and those are what we call the wicked. You apparently have gotten the message because you're sitting here. And so the idea is this is a people improver and it's designed to move you from birth to where God wants you to be. And you're intended to help in that process. You're not just like a ball in a pinball machine. You understand pinball. You launch the ball and it just sort of ricochets around. The ball doesn't have a lot of choice in what's going on. That's different than you. This is not a pinball machine that you just keep bouncing around. Now, some people do. They never get the message. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know where they're going. And so they are essentially cosmic pinballs. That's not you. So, you are born with strengths and weaknesses. You are born with talents. You are born with flaws. As I've said in Musar, the flaws themselves are not sinful, but the flaws may cause you to sin. The fact that you have flaws will give you predilections to do certain things, and if you get into those predilections, you will in fact wind up sinning. I mean, it's just the way it works. The other thing, though, is your assets and your strengths are sufficient to overcome your flaws. 
If that were not true, this whole thing would be cosmically unfair. In other words, if God puts you into a situation and doesn't give you the tools that you need to succeed, then God has been terribly unfair with you, and God is not unfair. Now, finding those tools, sharpening those tools, figuring out what those tools are, and employing those tools, that's up to you. But the fact that you have them should be a source of tremendous hope. Let me give you an example. I got a letter from a guy in prison. I don't know what he's in for, but I'm sort of assuming that it has to do with alcohol because he wrote back to me and says, I have this terrible struggle with alcohol and I don't think I'm saved because I keep going back to the bottle. And I'm assuming, don't know this, but that's probably a contributing factor to why he is where he is. What I wrote back to him is, first off, the fact that you're worried about it indicates that you're in the right arena. If you just said, I'm a drunk, nothing I can do about it, and I'll wait till I get back out, and I'll go back and get another bottle, and off we go again, and people will just keep throwing me in jail, and that'll be my break between drinking. If that's your attitude, then yeah, you got a spiritual problem. His attitude is, I am worried about this, and I'm worried about this in relation to God. Hence, he is engaged in the right activity. He's trying to figure out how to solve it. My suggestion to him, at least superficially, I haven't had a chance to go in and visit him and talk to him. They're still doing bureaucratic stuff. But my suggestion to him is every morning that he wake up, the first thing he does when his feet hit the deck is say, I am not a drunk. I am not an alcoholic. Now, being in jail, he's got sort of an ability not to be a drunk for a while. But what I'm trying to get him to do is communicate with his inner self because his inner self has the image that he's a drunk. And so he keeps going back to it. And so what I'm trying to do is give him a tool whereby he can talk to that part of himself that believes he's a drunk and tell it, no, no. You're not a drunk. You have a choice in this. And it's a hard choice. I'm not suggesting that cravings are easy to deal with. They're not. But he does have a choice. The idea here is is to get him to the point where he recognizes that he does have a choice and that he has got the tools within himself to conquer this. Because if he doesn't have those tools, as I say... God is cosmically unfair. And God is not unfair. Now, let me take you to a passage of Scripture. And I'm in 2 Peter, chapter 1, starting in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That's sort of what I have been saying all along here. His divine power has granted to us 
all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's what I've been saying. God has given you what you need. You have it available to you. Now, you may not be using it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that this is easy. But he has given it to you. You have got it available to you. And one of the things that is extremely important is knowing that a problem can be solved. So as you're going in trying to fix something, trying to do something, trying to build something, trying to figure something out, it's a major step if you know that it can be solved. Because then it's just a matter of searching and hard work. Whereas if you don't know that it can be solved, then you are not even at square one. So what Peter is saying here is he has put you in a position where you've got everything that you need to succeed. What he's saying to you is you are put into a puzzle that can be solved. And that's very different than fatalism, which is, all right, you're here and you're just a cosmic pinball being batted back and forth and whatever happens to you is God's caused it and you don't have any choice in the matter. That's not what Peter's saying. Peter's saying he's given you everything you need. Continue to read. Through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature. God has got a nature and his son has got a nature. The object of the exercise is that you, in character, become like them. Not that you become them but that you become like them in character. If God had wanted another one of himself or another clone, he would have done that. That's not what he wants. He wants somebody different. But somebody of the same nature. So on down to verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith by virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Yeshua Messiah. Unfruitful or ineffective. Remember I said you've got a reason to be here. In addition to fixing you, you've got other stuff that he wants you to do. He doesn't want you to be unfruitful or ineffective. So if you just focus internally just on me, fixing me, again, you've missed the point. You've got other people to help other things to do. Now let's look at this set of character traits. The first one is faith. You all know your Sunday school classes. Faith is what gets you into the kingdom. Abraham believed God, and God counted it to him for righteousness. So faith is the first step. That gets you into the kingdom. Virtue. Virtue means that you obey the rules. God gave you the Torah. God gave you a map, if you will, of how his universe works. That's what the Torah is. So virtue is operating your life as best you can in the path that Torah sets you on. 
things like don't ever marry two sisters. That's really dumb. There's all sorts of things in the Torah that are simply good practical wisdom. There's also stuff in the Torah that God says, do this just because I said so. You aren't going to understand it, just do it. Some of it's easy to understand. You can see the reason for it. Some of it you just do. But that's virtue. Knowledge is the next one. Of course, knowledge is why you all read your scriptures. Is because it tells you what's going on. It gives you perspective. It gives you context. It gives you knowledge, and it increases your wisdom. Self-control. That's what my friend in jail has a problem with. Knows he doesn't want to drink, knows he doesn't want to be a drunk, but he's got a problem with self-control. We all have a problem with self-control. We all do. And so figuring out where your problems of self-control lie and working on those is what's called temperance. I am perfectly happy drinking alcohol. I am not a drunk. I have wine at supper. I have a glass of wine at night when I'm reading and studying, but I'm not a drunk. That's temperance. So there isn't anything particularly wrong with wine, but our hypothetical guy in jail here does have a problem with wine, and he needs to do something different than what I do because we're different people. Steadfastness. That's patience. Keeping your feet on the path. Now, we all get opportunities to get knocked off the path. That's one of the things this world is designed to do. Notice I said that? Designed to do. The fact that there is evil in the world, the fact that you get knocked off the path, the fact that you get tried and tested, the fact that there are evil people in the world is all by design. There's a story that a rabbi was telling. A kid couldn't come to shul because he had soccer practice on Saturday. And the rabbi says, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you go to the soccer pitch on Friday and kick a whole bunch of goals so that you have goals stored up and then come on into shul on Saturday. And the kid says, what? The only reason a goal makes any difference is if somebody's trying to keep you from doing it. If I just go to the soccer pitch and kick a whole bunch of goals and say I've scored 10 goals and go home, if there's nobody trying to stop me, it doesn't mean anything. That's what I said. This world is difficult by design. Not an accident, because success doesn't mean anything unless there is opposition. You've got to work for it. Godliness. Respect or reverence to God. You all are here so that your feet are on the right path. The point is, you're living your life in the knowledge of the existence of God and the knowledge that you have responsibilities to God, and you're trying to meet those responsibilities. Brotherly affection. What you have are communities. And what a community does is you all are different. The fact that Tom and I are different is, again, by design. If Tom and I were just the same, then one of us is redundant. And the whole point of having a community is you can help each other because you have different weaknesses and different strengths. 
the fact that I'm weak over here, but Ken is strong in that area, he can help me. Okay? That's what brotherly affection is. And then finally, love or charity. And that's what goes out. That's the purpose of the whole thing. Love God, love your neighbor. Our Musar subject for this week is simplification. There are no coincidences. And the idea here on simplification is you're getting ready to go into this month. We're already into this month. And as you're going through this month, take a look at stuff and figure out what kind of things distract you and keep you off base. Maybe Facebook. It may be television news. It may be food. I don't know what it is. Maybe just an abundance of stuff, clutter. Figure out what it is, and for the month, get it out of your way. That's, by the way, the origin of giving something up for Lent. The idea is not to afflict yourself. The idea is to simplify things so that your focus is not distracted. And you're paying attention to what you want to pay attention to instead of squirrel and going off in some other direction. That's the purpose of giving something up for Lent or simplification of your life during this month of Elul. that allows you to focus, which is what I'm suggesting that you want to do. So, as you're figuring out what you want to do, the last thing I'm going to say is think small. Don't think big. Because if you're like me, you can look at yourself and your problems can be overwhelming. And you don't know where to start. That's why I say, think small. Figure out something that you can get a hold of and work on that. A small thing. Not a big thing. Because if you think small and you work on a small thing, your chances of success are increased. And remember, as you're going through this life, your successes are cumulative. So as you get one small success and one small victory here, that becomes something that you got in your pocket. And you can then go on to another small task, work on it, and have a chance to succeed. Because remember, God says, Peter says, I say, Notice the descending order of authority there. God, then Peter, then me. God has given you what you need. You've got the tools. Just most of us take a while to figure that out. And that's what you're here for, is to help you figure that out. (laughs) 